electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now in Last Call, full throttle. Elon Musk warning about China's EVs quickly becoming reality in one country, and we're going to take you there. Hollywood whiplash, a big update from Paramount, putting the entire media on notice. But the good times roll where retail traders are creating surprise winners amid the AI euphoria. Completely unacceptable. Google CEO letting it rip over the company's AI debacle. Plus... Say it ain't so, Oprah. A mogul rocking shares of one company after hours. And a very bitter aftertaste why that next bag of Easter candy might just bring you some serious sticker shock. All that and more over the hour. So belly up and buckle up because last call is up right now. Hi, everybody. Good evening here. Good afternoon out west. I am Brian Sullivan. All that and more coming up over the hour. But first up on Last Call, the Bitcoin breakout. It boomed today. Bitcoin briefly hitting 64,000 for the first time in more than two years. It's below that right now, but Bitcoin has been absolutely ripping the past couple of months, more than doubling just since September. It's not just a sniff from its all-time high. It's 68982 and 20 cents to be specific. It is inching closer every day. Mark, by the way, that number down. And here's what makes this Bitcoin rally a little bit remarkable and maybe kind of weird also. Bitcoin doesn't appear to be getting a lot of love from you, the public. We know that because of this chart. It is kind of weird looking, but that is the chart of the number of amount of Google searches for Bitcoin last year. Over the past 12 months, there was a spike last month as the Bitcoin spot market hit the ETF. That's that bump. But since then, you can see it's been flat. I mean, that's literally the world's most boring TV graphic. In fact, searches for Bitcoin are well below where they were three years ago. Look at that. They're also well below their December 2017 peak. That's that radio wave thing we're doing there when Bitcoin neared 20,000. So either everybody already knows everything they want to know about Bitcoin and doesn't need to search for it, or they just aren't that interested, which would mean that this rally is really being driven by large institutions like banks and not by retail investors like you. Let's talk more about that and more with our leadoff panel tonight. Joining us now, both on set, love it, KKM Financial Founder and CEO Jeff Kilberg and Canopy Capital Group Founder and CEO Eric Golden uh, in from Chicago and Boston, respectively. Gentlemen, Eric, we'll start with you. What do you make of this monster rally in Bitcoin? You're right, Brian. We don't have celebrities. We don't have... Hey, speak for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) We don't have ads. We don't have the big SBF. It's really just a a, a hated rally, which are some of my favorites, where the market wasn't anticipating this. They were underestimating the Bitcoin ETF. A lot of people said, buy the rumor, sell the news. The ETF happens. It pulls back a little bit. 
And then sure enough, you start to see the demand from the institutional side come in and start pushing the price higher. Yeah, I guess that's my question, Jeff, is why was there that gap? You got the approval. Bitcoin actually fell. It was like somebody's trying to find the gear in the car. That's right. right? That's right. And it's interesting. Everyone's talking about FOMO, fear of missing out. But I have a new acronym here we're going to put on last call tonight. Because we need more we need on more CNBC. ATA. Able to allocate. Okay. That's what this reality is. We're seeing advisors. In plain English, what does that mean? That means that the financial advisor, I work with a lot of financial advisors and family offices. These financial advisors now, with the ETF vehicle to track Bitcoin, they can allocate their clients' portfolios, 1%, 2%. That's the money I believe you're seeing going into all these different ETFs. And today was the biggest day for the ETF inflows so for I, all of them. So I may have lied to the world or America no, because, or, you know, because at the top still, and said it wasn't retail <laughs> because it may have been retail, that's right. but going through their RIAs, their financial planners, et cetera, Eric. Yeah, I think it, there are people that wanted to own Bitcoin were able to buy Bitcoin. They're able to buy it on their own in self-custody. That's always been a way to buy it. However, for most of the mainstream financial market, that's not the easiest thing to do. So one of the final hurdles for RIAs was, I have no way to invest in this. And Bitcoin ETF knocked that hurdle away. So you can no longer say that my theory is 0% allocation for all portfolios because there's no vehicle. Now the question is, what is the allocation? Now, some portfolios do not belong in Bitcoin. It's too volatile of an asset, and it doesn't make sense. But for a large amount of assets, and for a certain number of portfolios, this is an allocation that makes sense. And the question now is, is it 1%, 2%, 3%? And if you own NVIDIA, you might as well own some Bitcoin ETF, right? Well, if you own NVIDIA, you can afford to buy some Bitcoin ETF. But I do, listen, to Eric's point, this is volatile. Okay, Bitcoin has been having a great run. It's still not at its record high, and it fell to what, 15? It went from 68,000 to 15,000. Yes. So I would imagine if you're going to allocate, unless you're, you know, Dave Portnoy, who, you know, he's a gambler, not an investor, that's his word, you better be careful. And because this is money that you could go down 80% again. And so some people are still down on their Bitcoin investment because they did invest at the very tip top. So I think you have to be considered, you have to be very understanding of how volatile it can be. But as you're looking at mm. your alternative investments, this is exposure and it's available now through an ETF. Many ETFs. Yes, and how do we know, Eric, how directly connected the ETFs are to Bitcoin itself? I mean, is there a scenario at which the ETFs can go up and Bitcoin can go down or vice versa? Or is it literally I buy an ETF and they have to go out and buy the Bitcoin to match it? I don't know how it works like mechanically. In the early days, there was concern that when it first launched, there would be a disconnect. But as we've seen, I mean, these ETFs have grown so wildly. Wall Street can't not pay attention to this. The amount of flow you're getting and the, and the size of these funds, they're just growing so rapidly. And when the funds are that big and the volume is that high, it's more likely to start tracking Bitcoin more closely. And I think you bring up a great point. You talk about today being one of the biggest inflows, Sully. They bought about 10500 worth of Bitcoin, saying all the ETFs out there. However, they didn't mine that many Bitcoins. So supply and demand, an old, age-old age old, uh, dilemma, we are seeing demand come over. There's still GBTC. There's $25 billion in GBTC that may come over to these Bitcoin ETFs. That's a grayscale so, Bitcoin. Correct. Trust. Correct. So, do they already own a ton of Bitcoin? Like, and so if I buy the by the trust or the ETF, that maybe those funds have already had it. They don't. They're almost like banking it. Because do they have to match it up? Like, if I buy an ETF, do I actually have a little sliver of Bitcoin? I don't think I do. I've got a sliver of the ETF. It's being matched up, but that's why the trading is so high. The volume. See, we saw them surge at the CME Group on the futures, but we also saw volumes on average. It was seventeen and a half million traded across all the ETFs. That's double. But if I buy GLD, I'm not actually buying, I'm not getting a sliver of gold. 
So the ETFs are going out, and when you put money into ETFs, yeah, the ETFs are going out and buying Bitcoin. They have a relationship with a custodian. This was why Coinbase was one of the big winners. Coinbase is the custodian for most of the spot ETFs. So when an ETF gets a fund flow in, they're going into the market and actually buying Bitcoin. Unless they already have it, it sort of in their they bank, could if have, you will. They could have, some people, there was rumors that BlackRock or sponsors were trying to get in front of it. But the way the ETF market works traditionally is money comes in and there's a team of investment professionals there that have to go out and buy in the spot market. Because if I was BlackRock and I'm pretty smart, and pretty, which they are, and pretty big, which they are, you go out and buy a billion in Bitcoin. I'm just making the numbers up. And then you wait until the ETF. I mean, you could go for a year or two until the ETFs catch up with the money you've already had because now you bought it at 17. Now they're going in and buying it at 62,000. You could if BlackRock wanted to take market risk. I think that the reason why this is so fascinating is this, oh, this has been an upside surprise to everyone's expectations. BlackRock raised just by themselves. $8 billion in seven weeks. When you have a product that does that well, every senior management team around the country is trying to figure out what do we do about this product. And Fidelity's ETF raised about $5.5 billion in that same time frame. They've actually waived fees, Sully, to August 1st. So people are trying to be the leader, the best ETF here, and they're just they're bludgeoning each other. But the traders, the people actively who own Bitcoin, this is a trader's paradise because they have the ability to watch all this volume come in. And if it's the Hunt Brothers in the 70s trading silver or if it's the Crypto Bros now, there's Or the Duke volatile. Brothers in Orange Juice or whatever it was, <laughs> right? right. I mean, you know, he's not buying, he's selling, right? But like, where are the Goldman Sachs of the world? So they're, they're waiting, right? I mean, I think some of the players are still waiting because we've seen a lot of people tiptoe into the cryptocurrency market. But this will bring in the big dogs. If they see volatility and opportunity to make profits, you will see more players contend with this. Good stuff. Jeff Kilberg, we appreciate it. Eric Golden, great stuff. Good to meet you. Thanks nice for coming you. in, guys. Thank really you. appreciate it. All right, outside of yield, Bitcoin, let's take a look at what happened to your money today. Not, to be honest with you, not much. Markets fell just a little bit. The NASDAQ, the bigger decliner, at about one half, 1%, let's be honest. Stocks could likely, they may not be, but they could likely be stuck in neutral until we get the next big piece of inflation data. All right, we are not done here. We got a long way to go. And up next, Say It Ain't So, Oprah, why Winfrey is crushing shares of one company right now, the who and the why ahead. Plus, from China to Chile, how one country's EV dreams are being overtaken by Beijing. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Time now for tomorrow's news tonight. A major shakeup at software company Snowflake. The CEO is retiring. Investors not liking that news, or maybe they didn't like the numbers as well because Snowflake cut quarterly guidance. That stock is down right now. Next up, staying with cloud software Salesforce, beating expectations, but the company did lower its revenue forecast for next year. Here's what CEO Mark Benioff told Jim about the results in the last hour. 
you know, I've never been more excited about what's happening right now in our company, especially with artificial intelligence. It's amazing what is going on with uh, our incredible new product line. We're seeing the fastest growth of any new product that Salesforce has ever had, ever with our data cloud. Next up, oh no, Oprah. She is leaving the board of WW. That is the company formerly known as Weight Watchers. She's not only going to not stand for re-election, she's going to sell all of her stock. Investors right now are losing a lot of money on that news. Winfrey, though, will donate the profits of the stock sale to the National Museum of African American History and Culture. That stock is down 26%. And finally, the drama around Paramount continues. Now, Paramount did post a surprise quarterly profit as well as relatively strong subscriber growth in Paramount+. Plus, Stock's not doing a whole lot after hours, but here's the thing. Paramount is one of the most powerful media companies in the world. They own CBS, CBS News, CBS Sports, Paramount Movies, Nickelodeon, MTV, a bunch of other stuff. So the question now is, what exactly happens to and with Paramount? I have no idea, but your next guest may. He is our media reporter, Alex Sherman. We talked yesterday, Alex about how Warner Brothers Discovery, which was long seen as the likely buyer of Paramount, has decided they're out. Is Paramount's entire future now come down to David Ellison, who the son of Larry Ellison of Oracle, who runs the very successful Skydance Media? It's the most logical buyer. Is it the it, only buyer? It, it may be the only so buyer. So that's the most logical I mean, buyer. Byron <laughs> Allen has thrown in a $14 billion bid, but he bids on every legacy media asset of any value, seemingly. And, and the Broncos. And, almost, and, and, the, and the Commanders, I believe. And, and almost none of those deals uh, happen. Your, your lead-in was great for this company, though, because the assets of this company are so valuable to the media industry in general. It was the movie studio that produced Top Gun, which was the most popular movie a year ago. The Godfather, of course, in the library. CBS, which just had the Super Bowl. I mean, there's all sorts of valuable assets in here. The question is, does this work anymore as a publicly traded company when there's no clear growth story yeah. if investors are not rewarding streaming? Because streaming actually still is growing, believe it or not. Yeah, but is it making any money? Or it's, it's all, we're losing money, we'll make it up in volume, correct. even though we're losing money That's on the problem. So Paramount said they That's expect, a big problem. They expect their domestic streaming business to become profitable in 2025. So we're still not quite there yet. So maybe one day it will be profitable. Yeah, the, the, the companies say that, and they, I expect to do this, and then three years later they change it again. I mean, it's it well, they're fielding the offers right now, and there was a lot of talk. The earnings call just ended. There was a lot of talk from CEO Bob Backish about unlocking value. So that may be a key that they're open to doing a transaction. They have a special committee all set up that's fielding bids. I mean, they're in the weeds now about potentially either selling the entire company or selling different assets. The question, I think, at this point is, is the price going to be high enough yeah. that shareholders are like, you know what? It makes sense to unload this, even if it's a key asset as part of the company. I'm, going to rather a, than I'm planning to, to go to a conference in California in two weeks, and Backish was supposed to be there. He's not going to – I don't think he's going to be there now. We'll see. Maybe he is, but it seems like he might be working. I'm going to make a, a wild, completely unsubstantiated claim on TV because you mentioned Top Gun. Yeah. If you go to Skydance Media, and I've never met David Ellison. He'll be at the conference, too. He's welcome, by the way, to come on. We'd love to talk to you, David, if you're out there. He's super good buddies with Tom Cruise. Could you see Tom Cruise, literally Tom Cruise, buying Paramount? I mean, I'm just throwing it out there. The guy's got, he's rich enough. You know? He's got backers. He's got, he's friends with David Ellison, who is allegedly poking around. 
It's maybe he'll make Top Gun eight since and they'll be in a glider. I don't know. Since you you laid down the gauntlet with completely unsubstantiated, unreported <laughs> claims, Elon <laughs> Musk. Let's be clear. They're friends. They're all over each other's websites. Yeah, they are. Right? David has been re- Alex Sherman. I don't know if you know him. Reported that Skydance may be interested. So these are not completely correct. I was going to say Elon Musk just followed Skydance on Twitter. So you can throw that one out there, too. Larry Ellison. Did he really? Larry Ellison, friends with Elon Musk. They have a relationship that dates back to Tesla. So, you know, maybe Elon Musk can throw in a few bucks, too, and try to try to could, buy this thing. X, you never know. X it's, buys Paramount? Right. Look, you want to throw around unsubstantiated, unreported claims. Uh, there's all sorts of ways this could go. One thing I can tell you is that Warner Brothers Discovery has put its pencils down. Comcast also not interested in the Paramount assets. Maybe a commercial agreement. I'm told. So the legacy media, this jig of like, we'll combine these two big media companies and we'll come out stronger. Like that game might be up at this point. I feel like media is like the EVs of industry. Like you take a wildly profitable business model and you decide to completely dismantle it and roll something new out that apparently not that many people want and you can't make money on it. That's what the media did to itself. The... Over, the overarching thing that was said over and over and over again in today's Paramount Global Earnings Call, cost-cutting. We're going to make shows for less. We're going to make movies for less. That was the narrative, the Wall Street narrative for Paramount Global. Not the greatest narrative for creators that want to get into this business. So it will, yeah, you can't afford the big stars. So you gotta let, it won't be Tom Cruise. It'll be Tim Slews. Alex Sherman. Uh, we're just throwing haymakers out there. I love it. All right, exactly. Alex, thank you. All right, coming up. Speaking of Elon Musk... A warning from Musk already becoming reality a long way from home, but it could be coming this way soon. And Philibo is right in the middle of that and right in the middle of summer for this story. Brian, we are in Santiago, Chile. Leave the United States, go to another country, look to buy a new car or truck, and you'll find what we found here in Chile. Lots and lots of Chinese autos for sale. Why are the Chinese exporting so many vehicles? We'll tell you why when Last Call returns. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Welcome back. China's growing global auto dominance has some lawmakers on edge. Republican Senator Josh Hawley introducing new legislation to raise tariffs on Chinese vehicle imports, even calling for President Biden to protect American workers from, quote, the existential threat posed by China. Concern is not without cause. China is the world's largest auto exporter. Sales are booming across Europe, Mexico, and even countries like Chile. But what makes these vehicles so special that they are starting to take over the world? Well, let's find out. Phil LeBeau joining us now live from, as he said, Santiago, Chile, with more. Phil. Brian, a couple of reasons stand out for China's increasing sales around the world. First of all, These are far better vehicles today in terms of fit, finish, and reliability than they were five years ago. So consumers are saying, hmm, I might be more interested in buying a Chinese vehicle. And boy, are there more models available for people to consider. Look at the boom in auto exports from China. Remember, they've got about a third of the world's capacity. 
meaning they have to keep those assembly lines going, especially with that economy slowing down. They topped 5 million in vehicle exports last year. And about two-thirds of those, or about three-quarters of those, are internal combustion engine, and only a third are EVs, including BYD. And guess what we found here in Santiago? BYD, a new showroom. They just started selling down here middle of last year, and sales are just in the beginning stages. But when we talked with the head of BYD in Chile, we said, well, what do you think is the reason why people down here are interested in the Chinese brand vehicle? And he said, look, it's not just the fit finish, but it's also the fact that we have far lower costs and therefore far lower prices. When you see the Chinese brands, you get 30% more of the specs for the same price, or you can pay less than 20,000 for the same specs than a European or Korean brand. That is exactly what we found when we went to an auto mall, truly a mall with just auto dealerships here in Santiago. This is Jessica Morales and her husband looking at buying a new Cherry crossover utility vehicle, Cherry, one of the Chinese brands. She's bought Chinese in the past, and when we talked with her today, we said, are you looking again at a Chinese brand? Here's what she had to say. I have had a very good experience with Chinese cars. In fact, spare parts you can find anywhere. That speaks to the reliability, the fact that originally parts were not in great supply, but that has changed over the last several years. We get a lot of questions from people saying, well, is BYD outperforming Tesla? And where's General Motors in all of this? For the most part, BYD and Tesla have traded in tandem over the last year, Brian. There you see General Motors as well. Bottom line is this. We don't see the Chinese autos being sold in the U.S., and therefore a lot of Americans will sit there and say, well, how big of a threat is this? Oh, it's a big threat. They're slowly moving into Mexico. I shouldn't say slowly. Quickly moving into Mexico. Have designs on building in Mexico. And guess what, Brian? You build in Mexico? You are now part of the NAFTA agreement, and you can sell in the United States without having to incur a 25% tariff, which is currently what happens for a vehicle built in China brought to the U.S. And these are not just EVs, correct? These are gas-powered cars as well? Yeah, 71% of what China exports are internal combustion engine vehicles. That's really what the world is moving on right now. Yes, EV sales are growing, and yes, China is the largest electric vehicle market but down here, a lot of people were looking for a regular old internal combustion engine vehicle. And if you can buy one for three or $4,000 less than a comparable model from Hyundai or Toyota or any of the other brands that are sold here, you're going to look at it. Yeah, and they are. Uh, great stuff. Big trip. Uh, nine, nine, almost 9.30 p.m. there, actually ahead of us. Phil Abo in Santiago, Chile. Phil, thank you. All right, for more on China's auto revolution, let's bring in former Ford CEO and CBC contributor Mark Fields. Mark, uh, you know my affection for Detroit and, and sort of all things U.S. auto. It's why I was out there with the, with the UAW, whatever people think of that. I, I was with them. We had Sean Fain on many times. Do we need to ban or severely tariff these Chinese imports before they can kind of probably take over the U.S. auto market? Well, they won't take over the entire market, but I do believe that the U.S. should, for a, a period of time, not forever, but for a period of time, uh, prevent these Chinese vehicles from coming into the marketplace. And the reason being is because it's an unlevel playing field. You know, the Chinese government uh, over the last 10 years or so have given grants, subsidies, 
uh, to these companies. And so when you look at the advantages that they've had, combined with you know their playbook, what China has used in the past, whether you look at aluminum or steel, the difference here is the economic impact of the auto industry is multiple times those other industries. And so for a period of time, I think they should, but not forever. It'll give a chance for the Western, you know, for uh, the big, the Detroit three to be able to uh, compete in those mm-hmm. product areas. Uh, and they're going to have to because they compete with them globally. But I absolutely do believe for a period of time they should because it's an unlevel playing field. Yeah, I don't know how we compete with their labor costs, right? Government controls, currency manipulation, people making almost no money in, in who knows what work conditions. I, You know, it's Japan and Korea. They're far more advanced. They're far more open and transparent. Europe, the same way. Detroit, you know what you're getting. And you just wonder, uh, what would we actually get by buying a China-built car? What's it like on the other side? Well, you know, Brian, it's not only just the the cheaper labor, but when you look at their cost advantage, it's it's around some of their materials, particularly on the EVs, because a lot of those uh, base elements uh, and materials are sourced in China. But also, you know, the key to lower costs is scale. And when you look at what started out from the Chinese government to kind of be a strategic move to dominate the auto industry worldwide, particularly the EV auto industry, has now turned into really a tactical action to uh, help all the overcapacity that they encourage being built. I mean, you know, in China, let's use EVs, for example. You know, in China, domestic China, just EVs, not plug-ins, they sold a little less than 7 million vehicles last year in China. Mm -hmm. They have capacity right now for 20, and there's going to be another 5 million of units of capacity added in the next couple of years. So they're trying to solve their own problems uh, by exporting, and you saw the numbers from Phil and what they've been able to do. So they're they're basically you know o- you know exporting this overcapacity, yeah. and we have to be very very uh, very very careful about this, and particularly their move to Mexico, because as Phil said, there's many Chinese suppliers, auto suppliers already in Mexico, but if they escape you know the 27.5 percent tariff that they have right now, uh, you know think about it. The uh, the automakers have gotten out of small cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where the Chinese will make their foray and work their way up the food chain. And a lot of union jobs would go away. Mark Fields, thank you. All right, coming up, retail investors crowning new winners in AI euphoria, but maybe not the names you think. Plus, a furious mea culpa from Google CEO over its AI debacle. Is Google at risk of being left behind? We certainly talk a lot about the AI rally here on CNBC and Last Call. Well, Christina Partsanovel is joining us now with a look at some names that investors are watching in the hopes of maybe finding the next NVIDIA or the next AMD. Christina, can you give us any kind of hints? Of course I can give you a hint. I'll give you more than just one. And I just need to preface that we did see the major indices Closed marginally lower today. You got investors that are worried about month-end rebalancing, inflation data, which is out tomorrow, and just this feeling of being a little stretched with these stock run-ups. But much of that de-risking that's just happened over the little while doesn't seem to be impacting crowded longs, such as AI winners and those that appear to be AI winners. So let's start with the first one. Soundhound, for example, it's up, what, 62% week to date? But when you zoom out on this chart on a yearly basis, you can really see the run-up in this voice AI recognition firm 
it, the run-up is really happening very recently, just in the month of February. And that's because AI darling and GPU maker NVIDIA revealed a major stake in this particular firm. Yes, it's down uh, 8% today, but nonetheless, you see the point of the big jump later on. The hunt, though, for AI winners goes beyond NVIDIA and continues with the run-up on Supermicro, Arista Networks, AMD. But although I report on chips and love to talk about it, it's not just about the semiconductor names. You've got cloud firm Confluent, mobile tech name Applovin, both up 40% year-to-date. Then you have Cloudfare, Parsons Corporation, Pegasystems. All of those names on your screen are up anywhere between 17 and beyond 20% year-to-date, even though none of these stocks are pure AI plays. They just mention AI products on their websites or their most recent earnings calls. And as Goldman Sachs experts write in a note today, it's the return of the YOLO. You only live once mantra, especially among the retail traders searching for risk and big rewards and driving definitely that daily trading volume and speculative names like Bitcoin, which I they expect to hit all-time highs of, what, $69,000. I know you mentioned it at the top of the show, Brian, and also even caused an outage on Coinbase today, given that rally. And then it's also driving a lot of action in call options, which is reviving some of the meme trades like trading platform Robinhood, up almost, what, 30% year-to-date. Beyond Meat, up a whopping 30% today. Beyond Meat, though, deserves some credit because they did improve their gross margins, their cost-cutting. But overall, the theme and what Goldman Sachs is saying in their note, too, is that activity on stock messaging boards is at the highest level since March 2020 among retail traders as they YOLO and look for the next big win. Beyond Meat, the latest AI play. Christina Partsonevelis, thank you. That's why we said we're going to change the name of the show to Last Call AI. All right, sticking with AI, Google CEO Sundar Pichai lashing out at employees over recent issues with Gemini. That is their version of ChatGPT. Last week, Gemini's new image generator featured and received backlash on social media after producing historically inaccurate images and text. Now, Google has since paused the feature to fix it. In an email to employees last night, CEO Sundar Pichai called the errors, quote, problematic and completely unacceptable. Pichai further noting, quote, no AI is perfect, especially at this emerging stage of the industry's development, but we know the bar is high for us. The stock's been falling through the episode. Google, by the way, getting a lot of negative attention for this on platforms like X and others. Let's talk about it. Bring in Michael Wolf, the CEO of Activate, a tech consulting firm that advises some of the biggest companies on strategy, growth, and more. Um, it seemed like a, a big Big hit for, for Google, but uh, one I'm guessing they could they can get over pretty quickly. Well, the, the bad results is because they rushed and they weren't ready. And part of the reason for that is they don't want to be beaten by open AI. Right now we have about 12% of American adults are using ChatGPT that's coming from open AI. And less than half of that are using uh, what used to be Bard and now is Gemini. And so it's a big threat to them. I mean, we've, our, our firm, we look at our research shows about 10 million people in the U.S. are starting their web search on either, Google, on, on either Google's BARD or ChatGPT. And we forecast that within three years, that's going to be 90 million people. So you've got over, wow. half, of, over half of Google's $300 million in revenue comes from search. That, like, that seems like it's at risk. I mean, huge. first off, they clearly weren't ready. Okay, Google knows more about us, is my guess, than any other company in the world, particularly 
if you use their products, like Gmail, right? Every Gmail you write, they sort of scan it automatically. They know you're going sailing this weekend or where you're going to go to the library, whatever it might be. And they screw up this badly to the point where the CEO has to publicly chastise his own employees for these mistakes. You wonder if Google's losing its edge a bit. I, I think what's happened is... Or maybe scrambling. losing two edge, Microsoft's browser. Well, but Google, this is not a unique problem to Google. If it, some of this comes back to where is the data trained? Where do they get the, the models are trained on? And they're trained on the open web, but it requires human intervention so that they know what are the results that you should prioritize. And so it's not, so this isn't like Google just putting its hand on the scale. Yeah. Everybody's having to do this, but they, they've rushed, they've traded speed for accuracy, and they're going to pay the price. Well, the stock's down a bit. It's been a bit of a PR. A lot of people probably don't even know what we're talking about if they're not on X or some of these other platforms, but they can go, I guess, Google it for themselves. What's your advice? Sundar Pichai calls you up, Michael. You're a consultant to guys like him. What what, what words of wisdom would you provide him? Well, you got to be able to trust uh, among a couple people. One is the public to know that your, your AI models are going to be accurate, so they're not going to show a female pope or the founding fathers as people of color. So that's a, with the people who use it, or, or it's not going to generate legal, cite legal cases that are false. At the same time, they've got to rebuild trust with investors, because investors are looking at this, and they saw this as a yeah. sign that they're behind on, on the AI revolution. And that's the bigger risk for the CNBC audience is, is Google, for once in its existence, actually a challenger, not the champion. Michael Wolf, Activate. Michael, we appreciate it. Great to be here. Thank you. All right, a quick programming note. Tune in tomorrow night for the premiere of Big Shot, The Ozempic Revolution, a CNBC documentary dropping at 10 p.m. Eastern time. Big Shot, The Ozempic Revolution, tomorrow, 10 p.m. All right, coming up. When canceled isn't really canceled, or is it? More on the intensifying debate over student loan debt. Plus, give me a break, literally, while you may be in for a bitter surprise the next time you go to buy chocolate. It's the RBI, and it's up next. Today's RBI is sweet and sour because it has to do with the price of chocolate. If you haven't noticed, cocoa prices are soaring. In fact, cocoa futures, I know you probably don't look at them much, but they're up 145% in a year, up 60% this year, and 40% in one month. That surge, taking a bite at a candy company investors. Hershey's stock down 21% in a year in an up market. Nestle, they make Kit Kat and more. They can't catch a break either, down 13%. One big reason for the cocoa spike is weather in West Africa, where most of the world's cocoa comes from, bad weather, cutting crops dramatically, which means you may be getting sticker shock when loading up for Easter this year. Hey, maybe save some of those delicious Cadbury cream eggs, because if this keeps up, they could be the new Fabergé eggs. Cocoa prices nearly at record highs. Random and painful, I guess. Meantime, something sweet for many student loan borrowers recently. A few days ago, the president saying the White House is, quote, canceling $1.2 billion in debt for about 153,000 borrowers. That is certainly good news for those borrowers, many of whom are lower income. Public servants have also had some loans canceled, doing air quotes if you're listening on the radio. But that term canceled can be a political hot potato. 
I tweeted out last week that no loans of any kind are, quote, canceled, but rather just passed on with higher rates or tougher credit standards down the line. And I added that maybe we should also end the debt of not just college students, but what about blue collar workers like truckers who borrow hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy their big rigs? My tweet caught the attention of the former National Economic Council Deputy Director Bharat Ramamurthy, who said of my tweet, quote, so much is wrong, it is hard to know where to start. But he gave a thoughtful reply of why I was wrong. I wasn't offended at all. I love free and fair and open debate on this show. Everybody's welcome. So we invited Barat on, and he accepted for more. Former National Economic Council Deputy Director Barat Ramamurthy. This is how it's supposed to work, Barat, right? I write something, you disagree, but you're smart about it. You're polite and kind about it. I write back, and now you're on the show. So I appreciate it. What did I get wrong? Well, I think that there's a com- couple of common misconceptions about uh, student loan debt relief. I, I, the, the main point I want to make is that the, the people who are getting relief so far are people who have been making payments for many, many years and who are clearly entitled to that relief under the law and haven't gotten it. Category one, as I, I said in those tweets, public servants. There's a law that was passed in 2007 under the Bush administration said if you do 10 years of public service, you get the remaining remainder of your loans uh, canceled after that. So if you're a teacher, you're a nurse, you work in the military, uh, you do your 10 years, you get your loans canceled. What happened is that for years, people submitted their paperwork, they had done their 10 years, they didn't get cancellation. And so what the Biden administration has done is gone back and look at that paperwork, made sure that people actually get the relief they're entitled to, and provided debt relief, about $50 billion of debt relief to people in that category. So what's the, the confusion? So what, sorry to interrupt. What yeah. is the confusion then, maybe by me as well? We hear the Supreme Court. They say that the, the cancellations are unconstitutional. But are there, I, I'm assuming then there are special carve-outs to what you're saying from previously enacted legislation. That's right. I think part of the confusion here is that there are multiple efforts to cancel student loan debt. The, the debt that has actually been canceled so far falls into that category I just explained, which is public servants, and a second category, which is called income-based repayment. Again, a, a, pr- a program that's been around for decades that says if you make at least 20 or 25 years worth of payments and you're a low-income, middle-income person, you get the balance of your loans forgiven after those 25 years worth of payments. That encompasses all of the debt that's been canceled so far. The pre- president separately tried to do a new student uh, debt relief program that's what went up to the Supreme Court. It was ultimately struck down. But while he's working through all of that and exploring additional pathways for relief, what he has done so far is provide relief under these other pre-existing categories. And, and that's the, the entirety of the relief that's been uh, adjudicated so far. But I think I hope you could see my listen. First off, it's X or Twitter, or whatever. Right. It's like for sort of pithy, you know, quick things. Where does the money go? I think that's that's what people think when they hear canceled Money, if, if money truly vanishes, then Barat, I worry that it actually has no value. Well, I think this is an important point because these are federal loans, right? These are programs that are provided by the federal government under rates and terms that are created by Congress. So Congress says we're going to do graduate student loans and they'll be offered at a certain percent, uh, percent of interest rate. We'll be doing undergraduate loans at a certain interest rate. And we also have these relief programs for certain sets of borrowers. And, and the truth of the matter is that the student loan program, which, by the way, is about $1.5 trillion worth of federal loans, has been turning a profit for the government year after year for the last several decades. And so uh, the, the way that Congress has uh, set these rates and terms means that the taxpayers are actually making money off of the backs of, of people who are going to college overall. So uh, even accounting for the relief that's being offered. So the idea would be then... Some of these loans, many of these loans, which the government or theoretically taxpayers, because the government has no money of its own. It's just the money we put in. 
because it's been profitable, the cancellation is just sort of a balance sheet move from one side of the ledger to the other. But I, I think also, Barat, you're obviously a smart guy, can probably see some of the frustration of people out there that didn't go to college. A couple points they would probably make, and I hear them all the time. Why is it a college degree worth, A, why does college cost so much? I, I agree with that. Number two, why isn't a college degree itself worth enough for people to get the jobs, to pay back the loans? And, and also, what about those people who did not go to college? I mean, look, I, first of all, I think there's this conception that everybody with student loan debt is a doctor or a lawyer. That's really not the case. If you look at who student loan borrowers are, fewer than 5% of them have any kind of professional degree, a JD, an MBA, or an MBA. Meanwhile, about 40% of them don't have a degree at all. That's because millions of Americans end up going to college for a year or two, and many for financial reasons have to drop out, and they're left in this position where they have debt, but no degree. Meanwhile, 60% of student loan borrowers are Pell Grant recipients. In other words, that's a program that targets uh, a grant to a a person from a family who makes under $30,000 a year. So these are folks who come from lower income families. Uh, Many of them don't complete college, and they have to deal with this debt going forward. The truth Mm -hmm. of the matter is, if you look at the data, uh, a college degree doesn't give you the wage premium that it used to. And so that's putting more pressure on it. And then, by the way, I totally agree with you. we got to do something about the cost of college. President Biden has taken steps to crack down on schools that are uh, not providing graduates with uh, a good pa- career pathways uh, and that are defrauding borrower uh, yeah. students. That's it. We'll, uh, we'll, get you back. we'll get you back on again to talk about this. What I love, listen, it worked out. A lot of network sites, people just agreeing with each other. Barat, you were respectful and polite. Even if you disagree, I appreciate you coming on for a thoughtful discussion. Thank you. Welcome back anytime. Thank you. All right. Take care. All right, a programming note. What does Robert F. Kennedy Jr. think about student loan cancellations? What does he think about taxes? What does he think about Bitcoin? That's right. He's a big Bitcoin backer. Bitcoin's booming. We're going to talk to Robert F. Kennedy Jr. about a lot of stuff tomorrow. But we're not done yet. Coming up, the women changing business and philanthropy as we know it. We're going to reveal CNBC's inaugural Changemakers list next. And during February, we're celebrating Black Heritage. Here is Renee Jones, M&T Bank CEO, sharing his story. As a black CEO of a Fortune 500 company, I may be an exception. But it's important to remember that there are many exceptional people who create positive change and inspire others every day. Black Heritage Month gives us that opportunity to celebrate the many exceptional, absolutely extraordinary people in our black and brown communities across America. Welcome back. Today, we're unveiling CNBC's inaugural Changemakers list, highlighting 50 women transforming business and philanthropy. Julia Borston breaks it down for us. Take a look. The 2024 Changemakers span 17 sectors and include 15 startup CEOs and founders whose companies have a total valuation of more than $47 billion. 11 public company CEOs overseeing a combined market cap of about $170 billion five women deploying technology to jumpstart philanthropic impact, and four women shaking up sports. Each has accomplished a meaningful achievement within the past year, from a pharma CFO securing manufacturing capacity for a life-changing drug, to a startup CEO working to minimize and repurpose plastic waste, from solving the formula shortage to driving new value in sports and media. These changemakers demonstrate transformation, growth, innovation, and impact. They are driving change through new approaches to old problems, aligning purpose and profits. 
A number of these women are creating entirely new businesses, often serving consumers such as themselves. Take Maven Health CEO Kate Ryder. She is reimagining women's health care. And Miel Organics founder Monique Rodriguez, creating new options for natural hair care. Another area where women are innovating is green tech and renewable energy. Dandelion Energy co-founder and president Kathy Hannon is working to bring geothermal energy mainstream, while 12's Atosha Cave is working to turn carbon dioxide into fuel. Brian, I know energy is an area you follow very closely. I do, but I also like sports, and I understand your change makers list may also go around the worlds of sports and entertainment. Yes, that's right. We have uh, four women in the sports world on our list. Naomi Osaka, who isn't just shaking, shaking things up on the tennis court. She also has a media company, a philanthropic arm, as well as a skincare line. We have the head of the National Women's Soccer League, Jessica Berman, Kathy Engelbert, who runs the WNBA. Both of those businesses have grown dramatically in the past year. And Kia Clark, who is the CEO of New York Liberty, who has seen a big leap, not only in attendance, but also in sponsorship revenue. Very cool. Uh, Julia Borston, thank you very much. And folks, to see the full CNBC Changemakers list, visit cnbc.com slash changemakers. So there you go. By the way, one more promotion. Like I said, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. tomorrow. Bitcoin has been a massive story. He was bullish and optimistic on Bitcoin a long time ago when it was not even sexy. And now Bitcoin is over 60,000 bucks. We got RFK Jr. on the show tomorrow night. Hey, we talked to everybody. Thanks for watching. Last call, everybody. Shark Tank is next. We will see you tomorrow night. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.